In this week's episode of the Enterprise Fitness Podcast, we take you behind the scenes of a live event that we had, the Elite Results Bootcamp. We present on a number of different topics from training, nutrition, but more importantly, how we get the elite results we do here at Enterprise Fitness. So check it out and let's jump in. Today's theme is gonna be strength. So save your hypertrophy questions for tomorrow. Likewise, save your fat loss questions for day three. So today's focus is what? In the back, I didn't hear you guys. What is today's focus? Right. So we've got to play along, 100% participation. Who's committed to being 100% being playing full out today? Say aye. 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 Say, try it again. Who's committed to being 100% full on in the next three days and getting all they can over the next three days? Aye. Aye. That's better. That's what I thought. All right. So strength is something very near and dear and close to my heart. Um, I'm one of the few coaches in the world who earns a PIC level five in the Poliquin Strength Institute. And the way to do that is, I remember going to Charles after training Janet, uh, who won the Australian title... Uh, and the Miss Olympia, uh, she won the Australian four times and she won the Miss Olympia three times. And I said, Charles, when will I get my PIC level five? And Charles, you know, God bless him, he's passed away now, the late and great, great Charles Poliquin. He said, Mark, you train bumfuck athletes, train a real athlete, and then I'll give you a PIC level five. Charles didn't mix words. <laughs> and that was awesome about Charles. So I set on a journey to train quote unquote real athletes. And uh, two weeks later, I had a, a boxer come to me and I thought someone was pulling my chain because he was the former sparring partner of Floyd, Floyd Mayweather. Um, you guys know Floyd Mayweather is, is kind of a big deal. Uh, and his resume was very, very impressive, former sparring partner of Costa all these people. So of course I took him on as a client. Uh, he won the Australian Worldweight title, um, Aussie strength coach. And then I met a guy by the name of Andrew Maloney. Andrew Maloney won Commonwealth Games gold and Aussie strength. That's how I got my PIC level five. I had to prove to Charles that I could chain real athletes as well. Uh, obviously, I'm a lover of strength uh, and yeah, all things strength. The guys here are all very, very strong. We're going to get into how we build not only world-class physiques, but get you world-class strong. Who's excited about that? Good. All right. So the roadmap today is all things strength, tomorrow's hypertrophy, fat loss and transformations. Just so you're aware with all things, um, how do you say, food, because one thing I want you guys to do over the next three days is I want you to, one, hydrate. What do I want you to do? Everyone, what I want you to do? Hydrate. Two, I want you to eat. What I want you to do? Eat. Right. Um, you're going to need your carbs. If I was doing this course, I probably would have ice cream every night. Yeah, I would have ice cream. Sorbet, right? Um, because you've got two workouts every day. They're hard workouts, okay? We're not going to take it easy on you. If you have an injury, please let us know. We'll work around your injury. But this course is designed for you to guys find another level, right? So... The first workout on every day is 12.15 to 1.15. Lunch will be at 1.15 to 2. So that way, if you want to finish off the workout, you can. Uh, and the, the, the second workout of the day will be to 3 to 4. Okay. Um, so we have great Melbourne's Best Coffee. So if you want a coffee, it's $3. You can see Yana. She can get your coffee. We have Jocko's in the fridge. They're, what, like 6 bucks or something. Uh, we have electrolytes. We have a heap of supplements on sale. Uh, we've already got one hooked here who just bought a whole bunch of stuff. From our, but we'll talk about supplements as well. Um, but if you need that, all right. All right, so let's get into the meat and veg of this presentation. I'm going to move pretty fast. So if there are questions, and we are recording this, and by the way, this will go on YouTube, right? Just FYI. I'm going to move pretty fast through things. So if I do lose anyone, please put your hand up or even keep your questions. And we'll, when we do a review, please ask your questions. You got notepads, you got pens. Anyone not have notepads and pens? No, great. All right. So keys to strength. Stability, steel acquisition, muscle, joints, levers, neural load volume variation. 
And I've just said a whole bunch of stuff. We could do, a, you know, we're going to get to all of them. So let's, let's break down all these things. But these are your keys to strength. If you don't understand one of these elements, you're not going to be able to get as strong as you possibly could. So this is where kind of the misunderstanding of strength comes in. So stability, there is a saying, proximal stability equals distal output. Does anyone know what I mean by this? No? Okay, so the tighter you get on an exercise, the more you're able to pull in the joint to end range, the more stable you're gonna become. And I'm gonna do some demos of this. So for example, uh, if you want your abs to be tight, everyone pull their rib cage down and stack it on top, right? See how your, now your spine is now stacked, your ribs are now stacked. You're able to resist forces of rotation in this position. So whenever we're getting under anything, let's say a deadlift or a squat or a bench press, we want to be as stable as possible. If I've got the, yeah. So there are three, let me go back. There are three major hubs of stability. There is your scapula, your pelvis, and your spine. When we lift anything, if we're lifting for the output of strength, we want to stabilize these hubs as much as possible. So who's seen a bench presser when they set up, and we'll do heaps of demos later on, but who's seen like a powerlifter when they sit up on a bench, they get that really, really big arc. Why do they do that? That's an example of proximal stability creating distal output. They're pulling the scapula down. When you extend through the thoracic, you externally rotate to the near end degree, which then creates a much more stable base in the scapula, which allows more force. So a principle when we're, when we're coaching you, because we are going to be coaching you a lot today, tomorrow, the next day, we're going to be looking when you train to get more stable, be in a more stable position. Sometimes what it feels, it feels like you go backwards, but it's not. You're lifting with correct technique and form where you're not gonna hit a ceiling of what you're limited to. So ensure that that stability piece is something that I would say probably 95 of general trainers, most of your clients, they will wash over, they'll see an exercise, they'll do, okay, this is a bench press, but they're not actually stabilizing this joint. And again, the reason why this is important is because if you don't wanna be uncapped in terms of what your potential can be, you need to make sure that you're looking after the hubs of stability. And again, those hubs of stability are your spine, your scap, and your pelvis. It's the same thing, like if I'm on a squat and I'm like all floppy, right, my back's not protected. The minute I stack my ribs on top of my pelvis, I pull everything in tight, I push my heels, I get my feet centered, now I'm in a stable position, I'm stacked. Now I'm able to, to exert as much force as possible. Does that all make sense, AI? Good. The other saying for this in the mental image is you can't fire a cannon out of a canoe. Probably the best way to demonstrate this, if, if you could just stand up for a minute, don't hurt me when we do this, but face me, face me. If I'm, if I'm trying to push him, right, and put a little bit of force on me, let's go here. Right? If I try and push him and I'm out here, right, I'm, say we get in a fight, and see how my, my shoulder is not in a stable position. He could tear my external rotator in this position, right? And I'm really pushing, and if he puts a lot of force on me, look, he's already gone into a, see where he's, automatically see where his shoulder is it's not perfect but his elbow they're, they're more already stacked if i'm out here he can he can tear me. it's not a stable position it's a cannon over canoe if i thoracic extend i come up nice and high see how everything's stacked see where my elbow is everything's down now i can push him we can have that fight right so that's another example thanks him let's give him a round of applause <laughs> and that's the visual image of when we talk about you can't fire a cannon over canoe we want to bring those hubs of stability into that center point so we're able to express force, okay? This is the fundamentals of strength. So stability, 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 absolutely key. The next principle we're going to talk about is skill is a strength. Uh, sorry, skill, strength is a skill. 
Strength is a skill. So uh, you've probably seen on YouTube, Instagram, Anatoly, the cleaner, I'm your cleaner. Who's seen this? No, only a couple of people. The guy, who, you know what I'm talking about. So there's this powerlifter, world, world champion powerlifter, one of the best in the world. He goes to gyms and he punks a lot of really, really big guys, right? And guys will be lifting like, you know, 140, 160 kilos and he'll go up and lift it with one hand and then put it overhead. And he's 60, no, 74 kilos, right? The, guy, the guy's a beast, right? He, he's champion powerlifter. Strength is a skill. The way we get strong is with practice and with frequency. And it's practice, not performing. So one of the things that a lot of people get wrong when they try to build strength is they try and go one RM every day. Right? And this is where you've got the, the Russian kind of way of doing things versus the Bulgarian way of doing things, which is balls to the wall. In Bulgaria, they have a saying, which is, you know, if the rabbit doesn't run to 100% every day, it gets eaten. Well, the thing is, we're not rabbits, right? We're, we're people and we need to have the skill acquisition phase. And this again is something that's very, very much washed over when it comes to general population clients. Because if you can develop the skill, let's say, of deadlifting, where every single rep looks the same, and I have a saying that people have to earn their weight to the bar. You don't just go, okay, here, let's put 100 kilos on the bar, you should, you should be about right. Every rep should look the same. The only thing that should change from rep one to rep five, let's say, for example, is what? Speed, exactly. Speed of the bar, that's the only thing that should change. Right, the, 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 the speed at which they lift, technically the way they set up, the way they move, everything should be identical from the same. Strength is a skill. The way you can train that skill, the only way to fast track that is with frequency. And again, if you're doing high frequency and high volume, which we'll talk about later, then the, the intensity has to go down. If it's high intensity, you're gonna do less frequency. Yeah, these levers, if you start to think about them, either have high frequency, lower load, or high load, high frequency, right? This is how we're manipulating things. And again, it's practice, not performing. So the bigger the muscle, uh, again, we can develop muscle, we can develop strength through, through then again, that's one way to develop strength is we have a bigger muscle, that's gonna be able to pull bigger numbers. That's only part of the picture. If we wanna get really frequently strong, it's about our nervous system. It's about our tapping into the muscle, the motor. So again, the best example of this is Anatoly, where he's 74 kilos and he's lifting weights that 100 kilo, 110 kilo guys would, would wish they could lift uh, because he's so efficient with his nervous system. So there's the, there's the muscle component, and absolutely, you can be big, but you can also be weak and big. Pound for pound, you can, be, you can look like a Christmas tree. Uh, the way I like to train people, and I like to train people here, is you're not just built for show, you're also built for go. Right, so we're not just developing uh, multiple, uh, essentially just hypertrophy, we're creating bigger and thicker motor units and bigger connections. So, in other words, joints move muscles, muscles move load, so you need to look after your joints. So when it does come to strength, people, again, another thing that people wash over is the joint preparation aspect. How joints move, how a movement should look. And this is where, depending on what you're training for, is depending on the setup of that exercise. So for example, if I wanted to lift maximum weight on a squat, mechanically, the way I'm built, it is a wider squat. But most of my lifting life, I've squatted pretty narrow because it's more relevant to what I want to be strong in, which is a front squat, and have more crossover to more of athletic. But if it was just for powerlifting, for sure, a wider lift for my mechanics. So this is where you got to look at, to, to a person with a hammer, everything looked like a nail. And if the goal is just strength, and you just want to lift as much load like a powerlifter, you need to look at the joint setup and mechanics of that. That's going to be very different than if you're looking for athletics slash hypertrophy gains slash general strength. Because general strength and powerlifting are two different things. I, I was, again, there is gonna be crossover and correlation, 
but the more specific you are in powerlifting, the more specific you are in power, the less it's gonna cross over, right? Um, it's to a point. So for example, we're training an athlete, we're gonna get all their bench press used with a biochromial grip, which is hand straight out in front. If we're training a powerlifter, well then it's gonna be that optimal of, and again, even in that, if we're training a powerlifter for a max bench, some people like to go white. The wider you go, the more skill oriented it is, the more you have to rely on precision. Whereas if you do go more, you have a more degree of error to getting it wrong and being able to power it for your triceps. And it is different styles of benching. It's not wrong or right. It's, again, a little bit of mechanics, a little bit of preference, the ideal versus what the optimal is and what people's preference are. These things do need to be considered when we're getting very, very strong. So, but point here is look after your joints. And this is where, again, if you're very strong, you probably need a lot longer to prepare to go into your lifts than if you're very, very weak. Again, because there's the neuromuscular component of how, how do you function from the shoulder? Do you lift from the shoulder? Like if I'm gonna point my finger, do you lift from the finger, then the wrist, then the elbow? Or do you lift from the shoulder, then the elbow, then the wrist, then the finger, right? And I'm saying this kind of might uh, not fully understand what we're getting at yet, but when we go into a squat, doing things like um, pre-movements, like clams, for example, glute bridges, getting the body primed, doing primer exercises to make sure we're moving the correct, and moving in the correct motor pattern and the correct muscles are functioning at the right time. All right, next point, levers. This is one that's, you know, again, if we, if we are looking at moving as maximal amount of strength, we do need to consider levers. And this is just one point of many. And what I said, the opposite of levers is preference. Because again, on a bench press, the wider we go with our hands, the shorter the range of motion we have technically. But the wider we go with our hands as well, the more technical the lift becomes. We have to be more exact and there's less margin for error. Again, when we look at this example with a deadlift, we're not, we don't, the best deadlifters in the world, yes, they have a very, very tight lumbar spine, but their upper back, the thoracic is round, right? And that also, that rounding when their ribs are stacked creates less range of motion. So if I'm, if I'm trying to retract on a deadlift through my scap, then I have to have a very strong scap to do that almost well, every world champion deadlifter, when they pull that, their scap's gonna be in this position here. So we need to consider levers when we're lifting as well. What are the levers? And again, this comes back to the point that I was saying about, say for example, a good example is me with my squat. Mechanically, I'm set up, I've got pretty long uh, femurs. A wide bar, a, a wide stance squat, mechanically would be ideal for me. I hate wide bar squatting. I hate wide stance. It, it, does, it jacks up the adductors, it doesn't feel good, so it's not my strongest position. But from a lever perspective, that is where I should quote unquote squat. Again, these are things that we can consider when testing out things with our clients. What's the ideal, what's the optimal? Uh, this is, I'm your cleaner, 78 kilos, sorry, he's 78 kilos. So we spoke about this before, about the neural aspect of strength. So I think I've got the slide in this one. Yes, I do. All right, so let's talk about the neural aspect. A very famous and prolific strength coach, Charlie Francis, uh, he trained, uh, was it Ben Johnson uh, and a whole bunch of other very, very elite athletes. He said, the central nervous system takes seven times longer to recover to stimulus than muscles do. Seven times longer. So what does that mean? Again, the stronger you are, the longer it's gonna take to recover because you're tapping into more of your muscular pull. So if you do a true one RM max, or you're truly getting close to your one RM, you need to rest about five to seven minutes in between sets. This is why you see a lot of powerlifters, all they do is sit in between sets, they'll do three reps, and they'll rest for five minutes or 10 minutes, depending. Um, and that's because the nervous system is like a battery, and the battery needs time to recover. Uh, a way, an insight into the nervous system, so the nervous system governs everything. 
right? So who knows much about heart rate variability? No? Okay, your heart rate variability is essentially, there's your resting heart rate, and there's your heart rate variability. Heart rate variability is the beats within the beats of your heart rate. That is the window into how well your nervous system is, I suppose, optimized. And it is gonna be different for everyone, and there are some standards depending on your age. Generally speaking, the older you get, the lower that, that number will become. But heart rate variability, I definitely use it. I use an aura ring, which I think is a great tool, which is an insight into, and again, you can, you can look at your heart rate as well, but your heart is gonna be the, the closest thing and variable to looking at what's happening from the autonomic nervous system. So in saying that, anything that's kind of above 10% of what it normally be is indicative of that your nervous system hasn't fully recharged. So let's just use easy numbers, right? Let's just say my resting heart rate is 60 beats every night when I sleep, right? It's actually a lot lower, but let's say it's 60. 60, 60, 60, I do a massive workout. That night I don't sleep, or I have alcohol, whatever, it's at 66, or I'm sick or whatever, it's at 66. That would indicate that my nervous system isn't fully recharged, that if I go into the next day in my workout, I'm probably not, well, I'm definitely not gonna, I'm probably setting myself up for injury if I'm expecting and demanding that I'm gonna lift my maximal weight. So the nervous system's kind of that invisible force where a lot of people will go, oh, I'm really sore from my workout, oh, my muscles are really sore. At a powerlifting comp, sure, a lot of guys do get sore, but that's not why they're quite, quite, quite overtrained. They're overtrained because their nervous system has been completely depleted because they've been going, they've done seven, uh, nine lifts at 100% maximum, right? That's why they're completely de depleted because their, their neural force of lifting what muscle they have has been utilized. Another way to say it is everyone in this room, every single person in this room, has the potential to lift a car, right? It's called limit strength. But if you did lift the car, guaranteed, you would rip your ligaments, break your bones. If your nervous system allowed you to do that, you would provoke injury into your body. You hear these stories, and you've probably heard them about, you know, the grandma saved the child, or that feat of strength that was, you know, unheard of, and how could they do that? They must be lying. Uh, and they, they, some of these cases have gone to the federal court, uh, there was one where a guy, basically a group of kidnappers, took a kid's uh, a bus, a school bus, and demanded ransom uh, from the town, and basically said, you know, if you don't pay us this money, we're gonna we're gonna kill the kids. And the bus driver felt responsible for the kids, and they blocked him off. Anyway, he had to lift the equivalent of like 600 kilos of this thing they barred him overhead, and he did. And they the, the court thought that he was part of it because there's no way. But the reason they did a scan of his whole body, and he, he broke like uh, 60 bones doing this. But again, this is high, high risk situation where the nervous system now overruns and says, well, if I don't do this, I'm gonna die. So they're not situations where you're just gonna, oh yeah, I'm gonna do this, walk up to the deadlift and lift, you know, lift, lift 300 kilos and break the world record. It's not gonna happen, right? This is why we, tr we train ourselves to this. In life and death situations, you, you may be able to, to tap into that, but it, it's, it has to be very uh, a, a real situation, uh, usually for the brain to allow that harm to come to the body because you will cause harm to the body. You will break bones. You will ligaments so there has to be a, a very big reason to do that so that's your nervous system again you could do one rep of that and be not sore but completely drained and this is where a lot of guys after say powerlifting comps they will have symptoms of depression because their nervous system is they just feel very fatigued and kind of unwell it's not that they're sore it's that their nervous systems so overtraining when your muscles are sore it's not necessarily overtraining yes I'm not saying just train sore muscles but where we're really managing overtraining is our, our neural output. And the way that the only insight really into that is with our heart rate. There are other some tests that you can do like vertical jump, uh, grip strength as well. Grip strength is another insight into nervous system strength, but they're, they're things that you have to, to look at and manage. Now, 
if we look at this a little bit deeper, and I got this chart many years ago off the great Christian Thibodeau in his book, Little Black Book of Secrets. And he talks about it like this, right? So in neural terms, the, the exercises and movements that require the highest degree of neural activity are things like Olympic lifts, ballistic exercises, plyometrics, pretty much any movement that requires speed. Okay, so this is gonna require the highest degree of neural activity. Below that, you have your more technical lifts that are kind of static in nature. So your deadlifts, good mornings, body weight, uh, lunges, free weights, say dumbbells. Below that, level three, machines. And below that, your isolated work, your biceps. So as a general guideline, your nervous system at level one is very, very involvement is very, very high. So if we're doing, let me put it another way, right? Who knows what a, a clean and jerk is? Put your hand up if you know what a clean and jerk is. A couple of people don't know what a clean and jerk is? No? Okay, so clean and jerk is your here, up, catch, and then your that Olympic lift, right? So that imagine taking that to failure. What would happen? If we took a clean and jerk to failure. Yeah, you'd, you'd hurt yourself is an understatement. You'd fuck yourself, right? Yeah, well, this is where I'm going, right? Thank you, you're already one step ahead. So if we take that to failure, we're, gonna, we're definitely gonna hurt ourselves. We're gonna go overhead and there's bad things are gonna happen, right? Because it's, it's a high neural activity and it's an exercise not, it's an exercise that's done, it's a skill-based exercise that's done with high precision that requires lots of power. High reps on a clean and jerk is three. Three, five, you know, you're kind of getting into very, very high reps, right? And this is where you get CrossFit boxes that are giving people like, you know, 100 reps and things like this. And you see their techniques start to deteriorate and then they wonder why they never improve and they get, always get injured. Well, there's no wonder because you're doing a highly technical lift that requires a high degree of nervous system output. It's not designed for, you, you, there should be lots of rest in between. It's skill-based work. You want to drum in the pattern. Same as, I know there are a lot of trainers who are guilty of this. They give their clients box jumps and speed movements. Box jumps and speed movements, or plyometrics specifically, are designed for speed. When you're assessing a plyometric, you're assessing the contact time of the person on the ground. How fast can they get off the ground and onto where they're jumping to? As that starts to slow down, that's an indicator that they're no longer able to keep that velocity and they need to have rest. So this is where true plyometric work is very, very boring because you're doing three to five jumps and you're resting three to five minutes, right? Your fat loss client, that's not gonna be appropriate for them because number one, they're too heavy. Number uh, one, one, they're too heavy, right? To, to withstand the, the, the joint, uh, they're not strong enough. And also the contact time on the ground is way too long to be considered ready for a plyometric, right? So this is your level one. You don't take those things to failure. They have a high degree of neural activity. Your level two, I am not in the camp. I don't think you should ever take a deadlift to failure. It's too neural demanding. Uh, bench press, if we're benching together and I touch the bar, that rep does not count. If I have to come in and touch the bar, I'm grabbing the bar and racking it, right? It's, it's no, yeah, bro, it's all you. It doesn't happen on a bench press. It's technical. Bench press is technical. There are no force reps on a bench press because there's high neural demand and high skill output. Same as a squat, yeah? If I have to come in, that's sets over. So those movements are kind of one step below. Then we've got everything else. Like if we're using machines, yeah, we'll definitely take those to failure, beyond failure. If we're doing biceps, we're taking those beyond failure, right? So there are things that would take well beyond failure and use a lot of uh, different methods like cable machines, machines, leg extension, all these kind of things, which you'll definitely discover tomorrow. Yeah, which will be a lot of fun. Calves, you can train multiple times a week, take them to failure. They're very, very high resistant. Again, more, the more slow twitch in makeup a, a muscle is, 
generally the more, the more volume it can handle and the less neural output is going on, the more isolated something is. Any questions on that? Good, yes. Great question. So I'm just going to repeat the question for the audio. So the question is, if my HRV was above, say, if my normal is 60, my baseline is 60 and it was at 66, would I come in and train? The answer is, I would check and see how I feel, but I would not go for a 1RM. I've done that. I've taken the caffeine and it never ends well. <laughs> um, it, it, I usually just start to dig myself a hole that is harder to get out of. So what I do now is I come in and I move. So it may be a skill day where I'm doing okay, a lot of primers, uh, like a lot of stability work, and just practicing the movement without the expectation that I'm going to go for one RM. So I'll still move, I'll still do something. On those days particularly, I like to convert more to a bodybuilding style of training and again, move. Because I do think the movement aspect is important to keep the body circulation going, but I'm not certainly not expecting of myself that I'm going to be lifting max weights. Where this becomes really, like, this, where this has become really kind of um, profound for me is in, um, do you guys just want to get him a chair? Where this has become really profound for me is when I'm training specifically for strength. For hypertrophy, you can kind of get away with a little bit more when it comes to hypertrophy because the goal of hypertrophy is uh, more muscle, right? So it's about more recovery. But when it comes to strength, you are demanding of yourself a one RM. And if you're not, if, if, you're, if you're spent, then it's gonna be, you, know, you, you can't cause yourself issues. Does that answer your question? When would I know if I take a day off? Well, the num numbers don't lie. I say, like, males lie, females lie, numbers don't, right? In business, in training, in everything, numbers don't lie. So if I'm, if I'm due to hit, say, 150 kilos on a squat, wherever it is, right? And I'm warming up and my 120 feels like shit, then like, I know it feels like shit. Uh, I know it's moving and sometimes I can warm up through it and you know, it starts to click on and I, I start to hit my numbers But if that doesn't happen and my heart rate and I look at my, I'm like, these things aren't matching up So it's data, right? It's data because I know what 120 kilos should feel like I know what 140 kilos this should be easy if I'm neurally tapped Then I can feel everything's moving slower. You can video yourself I know when I, I lift really well because I'm lifting those weights fast versus I'm lifting the same weight But really really slow Again, sometimes it takes a couple of uh, sets to get into that pattern and it takes a couple of sets to um, neurally wake up. But if that doesn't happen after say the you know, fourth set, then I know my nervous system and it correlates to my heart rate, then it, it's a good indicator for me to go, well, this all matches up and tells the same story. Because you're gonna be, and at least you, think if you train with a coach, like if you train with me, I'd pick it up straight away because I know how you'd lift. Because some people do lift slow. Some people live fast, but you start to see how this looks um, if, if you're on or if you're not. So this is where the coach's eye becomes important. If you don't have someone who knows how you lift, then having that outside data to check yourself in becomes very, very helpful. And that's where you can look at the heart rate variability. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yes. Now, do you have like any protocol that you follow in terms of building up that strength, like during the warm up to those maximum repeats? We'll talk about that. Yeah, let's, let's park that one and come back to that question. All right, so another way to think about this in terms of developing strength is, and people have, like, it's been popularized by a few coaches on, well, on the interwebs, and that's the element types. 
and they call it earth fire wood. But really, I like Tudor Bomper's way of doing it, which is volume load variation. And volume load variation, when you think about levers when, you, when you're doing a training program, when you're training for strength, they're your three main levers of creating strength and creating, how do I say, a program and protocol, whether it's for yourself or for a client or for an athlete, they are the three main variables that you're gonna pull on. So let's talk about volume. Volume is your sets, how much volume of work someone can do. Now, if someone's weak, or let's say, for example, I get a new client, so I get one of you, one of you guys wanna train with me, right? And I look at the way you squat, and there's some discrepancies in the way you squat. I don't really like the way you squat, and I wanna change something, even though it might be small changes, like you squat well, but I wanna change like your rib stacking, your feet position, this kind of stuff. I'm definitely gonna use the lever of volume in that first phase. Why? Because I wanna rep in over and over and over again to get that motor pattern down pat. So volume's gonna be the thing that I, that I work on. If you're enjoying this presentation, make sure you hit subscribe on our YouTube or follow us on our podcast, available anywhere where you listen to podcasts. All right, so let's talk a little bit about ratios. Now this is from the great work of Charles Poliquin. And Charles, having trained, I think it was 800 Olympic gold medalists, thousands of athletes across the world, uh, he started to notice a trend of uh, strength numbers that basically correlated to performance. And there's what's known as the mother lift, depending on whether you have a lower body dominant sport or a upper body dominant sport. If it's a lower body dominant sport, it almost usually always is a high bar back squat. If it's a high uh, upper body dominant sport, it's usually the biochromial bench press. And that's usually indicative of your 100%. So in this case, we've got the example of lower body. It's a, and when we say back squat, this is not a low bar squat, right? And it's not a powerlifting squat. High bar squat, the way we define it in this, for the, for the purposes of measurement, because again, when we me measure something, the measurement standard always has to be the same. Otherwise, the numbers are null and void. Does everyone understand that? Like if I say we're gonna do squats and this side of the room does low bar, this side of the room does front squat, and this side of the room does high bar with no tempo, there's, I can't measure any of that. So the way we measure it, it's always a 4010 tempo. What is it? Yeah, does everyone know what we mean by that, tempos? So it's four seconds down, as fast as possible up, right? That is the tempo that all the measurements are based on, that is our nominal data. And the high bar squat, again, it's athletic stance. That's where we're at with the high bar squat. And the depth of the squat, your ass should cover your ankle. Okay, it's a deep squat. It's not a shallow squat. It's, it's, it's below, way below parallel. So that's 100%. A deadlift in a clean conventional grip should be 125% of your squat. And the front squat should be 85% of your high bar squat, which gives us indicators of if things aren't operating well. Now, again, if your front squat isn't, and again, for athletes, if your front squat isn't up to the ratio of your high bar squat, that's a very telltale sign that your upper back, lower back, that whole chain, that posterior chain is too weak. And as an athlete, we wanna get that stronger. And when I say athlete, I also mean as a, just someone who's training for general strength, right? So everyone benefits from this. If we look at the upper body model, the 100% is your bench press, 100, 110% is, a, that's a close grip, 110% is your mid grip, incline press is 83%, strict overhead press, is around the 70 to 60% depending on hand grip. A chin up should be 81% and a dip 105% of your bench press. 
Now, the reason why this is helpful is because let's say, for example, which is actually true about me, if my bench press is 100 kilos and my shoulder press is only 50 kilos, how might I get my bench press stronger? Sorry? Bring up my rotator cuffs, right? Get my shoulder stronger. Likewise, if my chin up is piss poor and let's say only 60% of my bench press, well, that's feedback to say my antagonist muscle groups aren't strong enough to stabilize the protagonist muscle groups. See how it makes sense? The way you want to think about this, the way you want to think about the body is like in Formula One car, right? In a Formula One car, if all we had was acceleration, would we be successful? Or would we be dead? Hands up for successful. Hands up for dead. Yeah? Everyone put their hands up for dead. You think we'd be dead? Yeah, yeah, right? We'd be dead. So in a Formula One race car, we have world-class acceleration, but we also have world-class brakes. Yes or yes? Now, if we want to build world-class strength, we need to have world-class acceleration, but we need to have world-class strength. Now, uh, sorry, world-class brakes. In the human body, the way this corresponds is your protagonist antagonist muscle groups. So if I focus on bench press, bench press, bench press, bench press, and I get my bench press to 150 kilos, and then one day I tear my rotator cuff, I wonder why, and my chin up, I've never done any more than body weight. Well, it's no wonder why, right? I haven't gotten my lats strong enough, haven't gotten my uh, rotator cuff strong enough, haven't got my shoulders strong enough to stabilize that force. And I probably wouldn't even get that close. Right, I'd probably be benching all shoulders, probably massive and, and no upper back and a lot of postural. Uh, I would probably wouldn't be able to wipe my ass, right? My hand probably wouldn't be able to go back. And that's not an exaggeration, right? You wouldn't be able to do it if you were that strong through here and didn't have the equal amount of muscle mass to bring that shoulder back. So we always need to be looking at what is the gas? If we're gonna get the gas and the acceleration stronger, we also, and a lot of the time, the fastest way to strength is actually through strengthening the what? The antagonist, the brakes, right? The fastest way to strength is what? Antagonist, right? Strengthening the brakes, strengthening the opposite, the things that we don't like doing. Yeah, most people are good at bench press because they like bench pressing. Great, let's do rows. <laughs> let's do two to one ratio of rows. And just to be safe, let's do a three to one ratio of rows, right? We're gonna do three, three rows for every one bench press to make sure we get our back strong so that we can keep bench pressing and stay healthy. So that this is the, these ratios, and when we get on the floor, when we, these things become very, very evident when you start looking at the pre-exercise, the pre-movement the pre -movement things to activate, the pre-activations. And a lot of the pre-activations that we teach and we do, it's all about the, the, the back. It's all about thoracic extension. It's all about external rotation. So that when we get onto the bench press, we're what? Stable, right? Because that stability is gonna be the brakes to our acceleration. And we start to put nominal data on as we look at these numbers. We're okay, this all makes sense now. I know why I'm weak. I'm weak because I'm not training my brakes. Um, strength is very simple. It's not easy. Because you do need to navigate things like injuries, right? Because the stronger you get, the more you're getting closer to that fire. The more the weight can actually hurt you. If you're weak, you can get away with a lot of stuff, right? The weaker you are, the more stuff you can get away with. This stuff really starts to matter when you start getting strong. And you, unfortunately, if you haven't learnt it and you just get strong, then you're really in a bad position when you're strong. Because that is when you'll get injured. Uh, so, strength ratios and structural balance. 
you get fewer injuries, you remove the constraints, longevity, and you address weak links. When you address weak links, you get the biggest improvements, right? This is something, this is a concept I put together uh, to help you kind of navigate when you're thinking about programming. Who thinks that would be successful if on Monday, if we were to learn a language, right? Which group do you reckon would be more successful? If we're gonna learn, let's say French. If for two weeks, all we did was learn French, right? Or, or do you think if we had a month and Mondays we learned French, Tuesdays we learned Japanese, and Thursdays we learned Italian, but we had longer time, which group do you think would be more successful at learning a language? French, right, why? Constantly practicing what? The one skill, the one skill, right? The biggest thing, and by the way, I didn't tell you this when you signed up to the course, on Friday, I'm gonna assess your programs. I'll explain that in a bit, but the biggest mistake that I see trainers make when it comes to programming is they try and teach their clients French on Mondays, Italian on Tuesdays, Japanese on Thursdays, and whatever other language on Fridays, is their programs don't have a direction of where they actually wanna really go. And part of it is deciding and crafting, this is where we're going. We are focusing on rehab, we are focusing on strength, we are focusing on hypertrophy, we are focusing on fat loss, and excluding the other variables. And if you get that, that's nice, but it was a gift free with, with the program. It wasn't what we were training for. We were training for strength, this is what we were aiming at. And this is where I see the biggest thing. So if you're training for a bigger bench press, make the program about a bigger bench press. If you're training for a body comp, make the program about body comp. Don't try and mix too many things in. So if you look at this as a compass, this concept is, is the compass of programming. If our north star is strength, neuromuscular, and to the east is hypertrophy, to the south is endurance, and to the west is coordination. It's very, very, well, it's almost impossible to train effectively, let's say, as a Olympic weightlifter and run a marathon. Right, so are we training for maximal, again, when I grab that bar, maximum neural efficiency, or am I training like a marathon runner for inefficiency? Because strength endurance is about repeating effort. Training like a weightlifter for power is about when you grab that bar, you're using as much neural uh, activity as possible. If I'm a marathon runner, I don't wanna be too neurally efficient because I'm actually gonna be using more muscle than the other guy. This is where if you look at an Olympic athlete, like a weightlifter, a powerlifter, you get them to do, they're gonna be able to achieve what most people would achieve in 12 reps in six reps. Why? Because their nervous system is more adapted. They're using more of the, their neural pull. So when they train, they're getting a lot more stimulus. If you look at a guy like Dorian Yates, who most people know in the, in the days of, of bodybuilding, he only had to do six reps because he was strong. He could do the job of six reps in two, three sets that most guys would need to use high, high volume because he was so strong, because he was neurally efficient. Neurally inefficient, you need to do more sets and you make up that gap with volume. Right, so when we look at this as well, hypertrophy and coordination don't always go hand in hand. If I'm an MMA fighter, the focus is on my skill. Yes, muscle is important, it's gonna bulletproof my joint, but I'm not gonna exclude and just train for MMA, uh, train for bodybuilding at the expense of MMA. It's gonna be coordination first and then building muscle structures around those joints, not the other way around. And a lot of people get these things asked backwards, right? So we wanna set our intent of where we're going. And I've given some examples there, like neuromuscular is, your, is, is some classes of powerlifting. Again, depending on what weight division you're in. If you're in a light weight division, then you don't want any muscle. Like uh, Natoli, the, the cleaner, I am your cleaner, the gym cleaner, 
he, he, he I dare say, is all neuromuscular because he's trying to stay at a, at a light, light body weight. If you're in that heavier category, like over 110 kilos, well, then sure, you can do some kind of power building work. It's not going to matter as much. Uh, then you've got your endurance. Endurance definitely can enter that realm of, of bodybuilding. And coordination is that endurance slash coordination. And neuromuscular weightlifting is kind of one of the, weightlifting is the one sport that I'd say is, is probably the true neuromuscular, like it is all about being as efficient as possible. Because, and also a high degree of coordination too. So let's talk about this, training on a continuum. So these are just some, some quick 101s. Um, some of you, this might be review, some of this might be totally brand new, but I should uh, say this at this point here, is your neuromuscular adaptation is what's known as a relative strength phase. And the reps are gonna be anywhere from one to five. Sets, anywhere from five to, to 12 sets. And your rest time is that 180 up to five minutes really, depending on how strong you are. So if you're going for one rep max, it's gonna be five to seven minutes, right? If it's, you're doing sets of threes, you're probably looking at three, four, five minutes per, per set. Your time under tension, does everyone know what I mean when I say time under tension? A couple of people don't know what I mean. So time under tension is if I'm doing five reps and it's a four, zero, one, zero tempo, let's say every rep should take me five seconds. And if I'm doing five reps, how much should one set take me? Sorry? So if, if every rep takes me five seconds to perform and I'm doing five reps, how? 25 seconds. Now some of you going, why the fuck is this important? Am I right? Well, I'll tell you why the fuck it's important is because your time under tension creates the stimulus effect of what's gonna happen in your body. So again, if I'm in a fat loss phase, does everyone understand that lactic acid is actually very, very beneficial for a fat loss phase? So if I write a client 12 reps and they do 12 reps in 25 seconds, that's a very different effect than if you did my 12 reps in the 60 seconds that were allocated, right? So if, if you're doing a fat loss phase, I want it to be 60 seconds. Time under tension is very, very important to control with your clients. I remember I had Andrew Maloney here. I wrote three exercises on a piece of paper and he looked at me with a very cheeky look like, yeah, you, you've got to be you, like, you're joking. This is, this is too fucking easy, right? And we did it. And I can't remember, I think it was like slam board squats, push-ups and something else, think chin-ups. But I completely fucked him that session. Why? Because I controlled his tempos and I controlled his rest period. And his tempos were, it was long tempos. I think it was like 60 seconds of every exercise with I think 30 seconds rest between exercises. And then the lactic acid that he was feeling just stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked. And he was fucked at the end of it. He goes, this is one of the hardest things I've done. And it's because I controlled the variables. So this isn't something to go, yeah, 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 I understand that. No, no, no. Do you understand it? Because when I go on the gym floor and I see you guys train and I write 4010, if you don't do 4010, trust me, you'll hear about it from me or one of my guys. Right, so tempos are important. We wanna make sure of that because this is gonna be your standard base. Now on that point as well, there are a lot of people on the internet, God bless the internet, that will say tempos aren't important. Having kind of walked around and tried training tempos, not training tempos, my stance on it is tempos are important because it standardizes the lift for your clients, it standardizes the lift for yourself and it's something that can be measured day in, day out. It is the same lift. When you remove the tempo aspect of it, sure, you're gonna be able to Lift a bit more weight, but that would be kind of my like 10% of training that I would do if I just wanted to like be a meathead for a, a day or so. But my actual training is I'm training with tempos. Why? To keep myself safe, to keep my clients safe. Because I never want to get under a, a I never want to, like as a, as a trainer, I never want to unrack a bar. And someone do like, oh, am I going to get the rep today? Like, I don't want to be guessing. 
I want to make sure that that person's going to get the, so standardization of the lifts are very, very important. So tempos are important, but tempos are important for that other reason is that it determines the neuromuscular, the neuromuscular effect or the muscular effect or the lactic acid effect that I'm going to have on the body. So I can change the tempo. I can give you six reps, but if I give you a three second pause, that's a very different training effect that's going to be now muscular rather than neuromuscular and stability. So tempos are important. And the energy system that we're using is anaerobic. Then we have functional hypertrophy. That's just six to eight reps. Uh, four to six sets, 120, so two, two to three minutes rest in between that. And your time under tension is gonna be anywhere from 20 to 50 seconds. And that's your anaerobic lactic energy system. So this is a really great uh, rep scheme, really great phase of training for hypertrophy, just maintaining strength, getting generally strong. Functional hypertrophy is one of my favorite rep strengths rep schemes. Um, and then we have muscular adaptation. This is your hypertrophy. So traditionally it's nine to 12. This isn't exactly right because there is actually research that shows that you can have hypertrophy from anywhere from two reps to 20 reps. And I'm gonna talk about that tomorrow because there's one key factor. We're gonna go into really look at every, all things hypertrophy tomorrow. So nine, but traditionally it's nine to 12, three to four sets, 40 to 90 seconds rest between sets. It's a lot less. Again, even though you're doing more sets and more reps rather, there's less rest. Uh, and your time under tension is 40 to 90 seconds. Again, a very different feeling than 20 seconds. And that's your anaerobic lactic. And strength endurance, 13 to 25 reps, one to three sets, rest, 10 to 90 seconds. Your time under tension, 50 to 120 seconds. And that's your aerobic energy system. And we're gonna be doing that system on day, what day are we doing that energy system on? Three. Three. All right. And then when it comes to load, it's thereabouts, 85%, 79 to 84, 70, 70 to 80, uh, 70 to 80%, and then endurance, 69% or thereabouts. And there's your rest. So fat loss, so conditioning, rather neuromuscular, four to seven minutes, muscular, 100 seconds to 180. Conditioning, conditioning is sports specific, right? Unless we're training for fat loss, we can design it the way we want but your conditioning is gonna be based on sports specific. So if I'm training a boxer and they've got three minute rounds and they've got 60 second rest, what, what do you think their energy system worth might be? How might I design it? Would I design it with five minutes of work and one minute of rest? Would I design it with one minute of work, one minute of rest? Or would I design it with three minutes of work with one minute of rest? Three minutes of work. Now, if they're an amateur boxer and their rounds are two minutes and they get to rest 60 seconds, would I design it for three minutes or two minutes? Two minutes with one minute rest. Exactly. Right. So your conditioning, your, your condition, if they're a soccer player, you want to know what position they're playing. Because if they're a goalkeeper versus if they're a midfielder versus if, you know, whatever position they're playing, that's going to be indicative of how you want to train them from the conditioning point of view. So conditioning is one of those things where people go, oh yeah, I'm a sports conditioning coach. But they don't know the first thing about conditioning because they don't even understand the sport that they're conditioning people for. That's the first question is what sport do you play? And then looking at what your heart rate does during that sport, because that's what we're going to design the conditioning based on. And this is where people get confused with fat loss. Fat loss is really a bad diet. You're never going to out exercise a bad diet. Yeah. I hate to break that one to you guys, but um, that's just not going to happen. So indicator and predictor lifts. 
It's a lift that indicates or predicts performance and strength in a specific athletic endeavor. So you pick the lift based on the sport. And obviously every sport is gonna has its own requirements. So you can use it for competitors. So for example, the boxers I trained, we would use a incline uh, barbell bench press as an indicator lift, meaning that if they start at 40 kilos, starting, I test them at the beginning of the training and then we improve to 55 kilos, that's an indicator that their punching power has gone up. So all things considered equal, their skill, all things considered equal, as they move into the, the ring, they should have a lot more punching power, which makes them a better athlete, which makes them a stronger athlete. A stronger athlete is a better athlete. So it's an indicator lift. If I'm training a soccer player, I could use a front squat. Meaning if they start with me at 80 kilos on a front squat and they get to 120 kilos on a front squat, that would indicate that they're gonna be more powerful when they get to the ball. They're gonna be a stronger, therefore a better athlete. This is also a psychological edge that you could put in still into your athletes so they feel like they're, they're improving. They, they have more confidence on the field. Now, you could use this for your competitors as well. So you have any competitor and they wanna improve their shoulders. Rather than just say, oh, you know, visually, let's chase this arbitrary kind of visual that can kind of be sometimes misleading is what is an indicator if I want bigger shoulders, let's use the military press. Am I improving on the military press? You can, you can definitely utilize performance lifts for your competitors as well, breaking down the muscle group that they wanna work on and if they're getting stronger in those muscle groups. So the main lifts for performance are high bar squat, front squat, deadlift, flat barbell bench press, incline barbell bench press, chin up, neutral usually, overhead press and dip. So these, what, eight lifts, is gonna be kind of your, your biggest base. If you're improving across these eight lifts, then you, you, you're in pretty good stead. Yeah, as, athletic, as athletic realms go, this is pretty tight. And credit to Stefan Kozult uh, from Kilo Strength in Florida. Uh, that's his big eight. So programming blocks, set a realistic time frame. work on areas of dysfunction. I can't stress this enough. Again, most people give people things of what I enjoy, you wanna look at dysfunction first. What is the dysfunction? Let's improve the dysfunction because improving the dysfunction is the fastest way to improvement. General clients plan programming outcome with more time. Athletes, you plan with less time because when you're training athletes, nothing ever goes according to plan. They'll, they'll get caught up and yeah, well, I've got an Olympic tryout. I didn't realize I was gonna make the team. Or yeah, I've gotta to go to Spain and fight this guy. I just got a call from my sponsor or Whoever knows, like athletes, it's, it's, always, it's always varied on what's gonna happen. You don't know exactly what's gonna, you get last minute calls all the time. So, but general clients, you can plan things very slowly and progressively and it doesn't have to be overwhelming at all. So the average phase for programming blocks is three to six uh, weeks or three to six cycles, depending on how fast the cycle gets through. So the average is gonna be for average clients, four weeks. They're gonna do the same program four times through. Uh, for the beginner, a beginner can do the same program for a lot longer. So if I have a pure beginner, I could probably take a beginner on that same phase, six phases through. Because if they're learning the movements, they need to get accustomed to learning the movements, it's not gonna be about output. For someone who's really advanced, it's gonna be three weeks. Right? So the more advanced you become, the faster you can train, change that, uh, and uh, the, the faster you can change the exercises. Go all in on the outcome. I gave the example before about language. We're learning a language. We're not trying to learn three languages at the same time. We're trying to learn one language. Mixed programs give mixed results. And always, 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 
write the program backwards from the outcome that you want to achieve. And I know this sounds really, really simple, but it's often overlooked by so many people. So let's say, for example, I have someone who comes to see me and they want to compete next year. Well, I'm going to plan, I know what I'm going to give them before the comp. I'm going to give them high reps, they're going to be in a calorie deficit, they might be doing cardio, I'm going to be trying to get them as lean as possible. Then I'm planning back all this way. Where are they now? Where do I need to get them? How much time do I have? I've got to get 10 kilos of body fat off them? Yeah, no problem. I'm going to do a recomp phase, I'm going to get them strong phase one, then I'm starting to plan this phase out. Most people don't factor that in. They go, okay, they want to compete, let's start with competing phase one and get them really lean now. Well, I don't need you lean now. I need you to get strong, put some muscle on you and, uh, implement, and then start to bring your calories down over time. I don't need to do that right now. So always write the, the program, do, a, do an analysis of the gap, write the program backwards from where they are because that tells you the timeline that they're at. And again, a telltale sign that you have an incompetent coach and hopefully you're not an incompetent coach but a telltale sign they're an incompetent coach is you're burning fat all year round. That's not a goal. Fat, fat loss, burning fat loss from an athletic standard is not a goal. Uh, that's an outcome, right? The, the goal is strength, improve movements, improve uh, muscle mass, improve uh, improvements in areas. Fat loss is a byproduct. So uh, linear periodization, just some quick references refers to a system developed in the 1950s and 60s by the Soviet Union whereby training volume progressively increased over time and training intensity uh, progressively increased over time. These are just uh, systems to understand when we're talking about training blocks. There's also undulating periodization, which is you can have daily undulating periodization where I don't really like that system as much, but you can undulate, again, volume uh, based. This is more for... I'd use daily undulating periodization for more kind of a power building type of phase. If someone's quite strong, I wouldn't use it for general population clients. But if someone was, let's say, kind of on the tail end of a comp and we needed to manage them more closely, then daily undulating period when they're coming in with high levels of fatigue, that's when I think it is appropriate. Undulating means to move up and down and it can be daily, monthly, weekly. And again, it's to manage fatigue and accumulation fatigue. That's where I would use it. If I've got a general population client, they don't deserve it, <laughs> right? Frankly, they don't, they don't deserve it because they're not, they're not probably training enough, right? Um, they're probably training three, four days a week. But I mean, if they're training four days a week, maybe, but what level of intensity? If I've got a competitor on the other hand who puts in a, a lot of work, and again, we spoke before about a powerlifting comp, if I'm getting, ready, getting really strong, then daily undulating can, can make sense. But it's gonna be more reactive in some sense um, of based on how someone feels. It's not necessarily gonna be set. Right, but it is another system. So I think I want to double check. Cool. So review. So to, to put kind of a summary or review on this, right? In the internship, we talk about screening. We talk in depth about screening. We're not going to do screening here. Screening, if you want our screening and assessment stuff, that's at the internship. That's our two-day course but you identify client problems through screening. I've got a whole bunch of YouTube videos on that as well. Uh, so screening, you screen and identify, you select the exercises to correct the issues and you program to build muscle and strength. 80% of, of the time, diet to lose fat and you can't exercise a bad diet. So you're not programming for fat loss. Traditionally, this might look familiar for some of you, I'm looking at you because it certainly looks familiar. Traditionally, programming cycles are taught 
as accumulation, intensification, accumulation, intensification, accumulation, intensification. It's basically a fancy word to say accumulation is you do a phase of high volume with a phase of high intensity, with a phase of high volume, with a phase of high intensity. With a, so every four weeks you're shifting from accumulation to intensity. I don't like that system as much because I'll tell you for most general population clients, you need a phase here uh, that is skill acquisition. And skill acquisition is, and also when I say skill acquisition, it's also about teaching people stability. Again, when we go get into this, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Teaching people how to stay stable and that for a general population clients can take four weeks, it can take eight weeks, it can take 12 weeks. But even for like say athletes as well, you need to have a skill acquisition phase. The progression loads that I like rather than, I mean, accumulation intensification is using the eight to 12% rule, which means that from phase one to phase two, instead of accumulation intensification, we're increasing loads by eight to 12%. So it means the reps are gonna come down, but increasing intensity eight to 12% when we move into accumulation phase, uh, or we increase it by two, we, we, we add two reps if we're moving to accumulation, or we subtract two reps if we're moving into, uh, into intensification. So using reps or using intensities can be another good way to progress load and volume. So here's an example of a beginner trainee. Uh, accumulation one, they're doing 10 to 12 reps. Accumulation, uh, then they're moving to their second phase. So accumulation one, intensification one, they're doing five sets of six to eight. Accumulation two, so their third program, they're doing five sets of eight to 10 reps. And then accumulation two, which is their fourth program, they're doing six sets of four to six reps. So that's just an example of how you might lay this out. This would be indicative of four phases. For an advanced athlete, we've got here five sets of a relative strength, so four to six reps, then moving into intensification one, clusters, so they're doing five reps, but in clusters, then moving them back into accumulation, which they're doing five, five, three, three, and then moving them back into intensification, which is three, two, one, three, two, one. So you can see how we're using in that one, we're using the rule of plus two, minus two from moving from accumulation to intensification. Again, accumulation is higher volume, intensification is higher intensity. You should be thinking about these when you're stacking programs on top of each other. Is this an accumulation phase? Is this an intensification phase? So in programming, you need enough sameness so you can measure improvement, but not so much that the body stagnates. And this we'll talk about later, but these I wanted to include here. I'm not gonna talk all about these now, but these are some rep schemes that I wanted to include in your, in your take home packs. Rep schemes and systems that we'll frequently use in relative strength and in functional hypertrophy, which is what we're talking about today. Primarily the, function, the relative strength one is what we're looking at, right? So these are from ascending, descending, cluster, five by five, wave loading, pyramid, one to six system, uh, and different ways that we accumulate, ascend, ascend and descending rep structures that we'll use in terms of that relative strength. So these are just systems, they're kind of like uh, our go-to systems that we'll talk about then. Uh, in coaching phases, I think, when we're coaching a phase, you wanna think of it like this. Week one, you underachieve. Week two, you achieve. Week three, you overachieve, that's when you really push. And week four, depending on the athlete or the client, you deload. Most of your clients don't deserve a deload, right? They don't train hard enough. Uh, I doesn't say that generally, right? If you've got a really, someone who train, if you guys train hard, you probably do deserve a deload, but that's one thing I always add in there. All right, practice quality movements. Let me lay out while we wrap up 
the seven mistakes. I'm going to tell you, so I'm going to summarize this presentation by telling you what not to do, right? So mistakes that people make when building strength is one, they don't periodize. They don't have a plan. So not periodizing, what that means is they don't have an outcome. They don't plan backwards from where the client is. They don't think about the dysfunctions and the things that need to get strong. They just focus on the thing that they want to get strong and they don't think about the antagonist and protagonist muscle groups and skill acquisition phase. Two, they rely on fixed training systems. A fixed training system is they go from a five by five to a Hepburn method to cluster sets to wave loading to a different scheme of wave loading and they don't actually have any structure of piecing these things together of accumulation intensification or uh, plus and two minus reps, or they're not using uh, load variation in a very sophisticated way. They're just using, they're stacking systems on top of each other and hoping for the best. Mistake two is they're not performing exercises correctly. They wash over the, the details of how to set up. Every set, every rep should look the same minus speed. That should be the only difference. Mistake number four, is they rush movement competency and they progress too fast. Is they think near enough is good enough. No, you want to, you want your training to reflect mastery. You want every movement to, to really get into that level where it's this consistently the same each time. Mistake number five is there's no rationale behind the programming. If you ask them, if I asked you, I want you to think about this now. If you write a program for your client, I asked you, hey, why'd you write that? Why'd you do this? Why'd you give them this exercise? There should be rationale behind everything that you write on that piece of paper for that client. If there's not a rationale there, then you've got to question, why am I giving him? Why am I wasting this segment of time for that? Mistake number six, lack of rapport with the client. As in, you give them all the right things, but the client doesn't believe, like, or trust you. Therefore, the program isn't really hitting the way it should. Mistake number seven is not understanding the purpose of screening. People think screening is a checkbox system where you just tick a bunch of boxes and say, yeah, I screen the client. No, screening is your data of how to inform and write the program. Screening is paramount to writing programs because it informs the starting point of where you need to be. So that wraps up our first presentation of our three days on strength. Thanks for listening to the Enterprise Fitness Podcast and watching the full presentation. If you've enjoyed this, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a comment wherever you're listening to this through or a review would be forever grateful. Till next week, train hard, eat well and supplement smart.